The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Thank you very much uh, for having me, and uh, let's just get uh, right into it. But before I begin, I want to apologize on two fronts. I realize the title of the book is provocative, right, and invites uh, invitations of uh, ethnic stereotyping. And uh, please uh, feel free to challenge me after the talk, uh, because this is just uh, our opinion, and I'm sure that everything is very gray. And secondly, before I get into the business implications, I did want to spend just a few slides talking about the Chinese worldview. And this really goes at a galloping pace, all right? So uh, again, uh, please pardon the theoretical indulgence. I'm wondering if we could possibly turn down the lights up front, at, at least so we can see the, the videos a little bit clearer. But um, I've been in China for uh, 18 years, 14 if you don't include Hong Kong. And of course, I know equal young here, but still. Uh, you really can't understand the, the essence of Chinese from Hong Kong, I think. This is my house, all right? I live in one of those uh, Shanghai uh, lane house, Lilo, and I can just say that I got a lot of my insights on life on the street, interacting with my 75-year-old neighbors who treated me as a foreign invader and the need for trust facilitation. But uh, when you come into China as an American, I often find, and I had no real experience in China, that we tend to be very Reagan-esque, uh, uh, culturally absolutist, exceptionalist, believing in a shining city on a hill. And very quickly, through the work that we do with clients and also through your own experience, one realizes that China is becoming modern, China is becoming international, but China is not becoming Western. And if people, brands, uh, tourists, uh, uh, corporate executives, diplomats want to be productive in China, they need to bring things into alignment with a Chinese world view. So, uh, this, the reason why I wrote this book is because I'm quite optimistic of the future of the 21st century if there is mutual understanding. And I'm using consumer behavior, which is ultimately about choices, to try and make a few broader conclusions about the nature of Chinese society. I'll start with the fact that uh, Chinese and Americans have different dreams. Of course, both uh, cultures like money and they like freedom, all right? But the definition of freedom is, is quite different, and the definition of the individual relationship to society is quite different as well. I think that Americans have always admired people like Steve Jobs or, or Bill Gates because they have the courage to challenge convention. I have to define my terms very clearly from the outset. Individualism, in an American sense, I believe, is society encouraging you to define yourself independent of society. It's not necessarily about anarchy, but it's the pursuit of happiness and defining yourself independent of societal expectations. The basic productive unit in America is, I believe, the individual. In China, I believe that the basic productive unit, despite the fact that egos can be big, is in fact all right, the clan. The individual doesn't exist independent of his obligations and responsibilities to other people. So Americans applaud even the attempt of mold-breaking innovation or, uh, or, or uh, challenge to convention. So if you take a look at Jack, Jack Ma, he to me is a Chinese icon because what he did is he took quintessential Chinese traits in the business world the focus on scale, the focus on low price as a competitive advantage. And then he twisted them, he reinterpreted them to create a new China business model, one that is inspired by Chinese culture or Chinese strengths. So Alibaba you know, is the world's largest B2B portal uh, in terms of trading. And this is why he is an icon, because he reinterpreted a Chinese strength and then won on a global stage. I'll start also now with a television ad. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a uh, slogan that we have, a diamond is forever, one of our clients is De Beers. 
And if you really think about what a diamond is forever, and what that means in America is romantic love that lasts a lifetime. Romantic love is the fuel of, of the union and the core of a marriage. So uh, take a look at this, because I think that we'll talk later what uh, marriages is a little different in China. Can we lower the lights to the anniversary? Yeah, happy anniversary. Um, yeah, there's something you got to do. Two souls together in romantic uh, love. Okay. Uh, 
it, on one hand, Confucian society is very regimented, very rule-bound, very hierarchical. Uh, we've probably heard of the Wu Lung, the five key relationships that make up all ordered society between a father to son, a younger uh, husband to wife, older brother to younger brother, friend to friend, and ruler to rule. And without whipping up a mathematical lather, suffice it to say that the individual in China does not exist independent of his obligations and responsibilities to other people. There are intricate codes and rituals of, of, of mutual obligation that must be adhered to lest chaos break out. So there is all right, regimentation. And you don't break through barriers. You at best weave around them with clever resourcefulness understatement and Han Shu personality. But on the other hand, okay, what most Westerners don't think about when they think of Confucianism is it's boldly ambitious. Confucianism, I think it can be argued, was the world's first socially mobile meritocratic society. By mastering convention, by internalizing the rules over 2,000 years of taking the civil servant exam, you could climb up the hierarchy. But that was a question of interpreting and mastering received wisdom. So there is a tension in the heart of many Chinese and Confucian society between wanting to fit in and wanting to stand up, wanting to conform to the rules, but, uh, but move forward within the system. But very few Chinese actually rebel. Like very few Chinese uh, cross the red line of overt rebellion. So these worldview characteristics family being the center of uh, the basic unit of society, uh, the in importance of uh, you know, uh, stability. These, I think, yield very distinct Chinese strengths, which will help it emerge as an economic superpower in the 21st century. The first, of course, is the ability to nationally mobilize resources. You saw it with the Olympics. You see it with the, the subways, uh, you know, the, the highway networks. You see it with the development of the economy, with the strategic management of core industries. And you even saw it, uh, you know, after the earthquake in uh, Sichuan in 2008, when there was top-down command and organ mobilization of resources for anything that is a national question. Right. So this is cliche picture, but you know it still works for Western. You guys, of course, are much more advanced than the clients that come over and say, boy, China's big. Uh, but this is 1990, so this is uh, Shanghai uh, looking out from behind the bond, and this is Shanghai 2012. That's quite a transformation, and it was meticulously orchestrated. But in business as well, one core Chinese strength is the ability to manage scale across broad swaths of time and space. We've heard of Lenovo, all right, which took over the IBM PC division. What is impressive about Lenovo is not its product innovation, although it sports genuine many bells and whistles, but the fact that they have this distribution network and this retail sales outfit of uh, several thousand that penetrate not just fifth-tier cities, not just sixth-tier cities, but the hinterland, right, the rural areas now. They have tentacles in every corner of the country. China Mobile has 900 million uh, you know, uh, uh, customers right now. Higher, okay, even if you're talking about, uh, again, a scale business, Chinese trust higher because of scale, and we'll talk later service, but as it extends its footprint across the globe, it meticulously moves, okay, from country to country, so that now actually Hire is indeed a player in the United States with about a 25% share of refrigerators, or which is quite an impressive feat. Uh, not that it competes at a price premium, but still it's there, right? So mobilization of resources is a key strength. Another key strength is incrementalism. Chinese abhor breakthrough, in my opinion. Anything that is breakthrough is inherently destabilizing. Any American that's waiting for a rapid appreciation of the renminbi right, is fooling himself. But it will move bit by bit, steadily and surely, to, to achieve a balance with other world currencies in line with China's desire to become a financial center. But China moves step by step. And you can just see how growth 
is absolutely orchestrated. I mean, we can talk about the statistics, we don't have time for that, but it is step by step. You can see how the highways have been laid down step by step. So big things are accomplished bit by bit. The Chinese have an expression, yibu yigajali, all right? One step, one footprint, and that's how Chinese make progress. So again, those are two very important Chinese strengths. I guess I have to say a few Chinese weaknesses that make it necessary for China to collaborate with societies and businesses that complement it. Right? The first one I think is fair to say, if we define innovation as mold-breaking innovation as opposed to frugal innovation or incremental innovation, China has conformism due to a Confucian culture that militates against that type of innovation. Things are regimented and regulated. And this gets translated into the structure of Chinese companies as well, you know, in terms of how they are set up uh, in a way that does not necessarily focus first and foremost on long-term shareholder gain. So innovation in China is also incremental. And I am not saying that the Chinese are not capable of creativity. Of course they are. I believe that Chinese are the most, the, the, I'll just say it, the smartest people on the planet, right? because they have both lateral abilities and, and uh, linear abilities that put many Americans to shame. And there are artists in China that are capable of creating exquisite works, whether you're talking about Johnny Mo, uh, whether you're talking about Zhang Wan, I love this movie, Ai Weiwei. I mean, these are all conceptual explorers. The difference is, though, that creativity in China exists far out of reach from the normal uh, person. It's placed up high uh, in, in a bottle, and, and it's a little bit of a threat. So Chinese have a little bit of a anxiety about mold-breaking creativity. Uh, this is seen in the business world with the Shanzai phenomenon. I think you guys are all familiar with what Shanzai means, but it's not exactly copying, right? It's fakes with a twist. Uh, Shanzai is, uh, literally means mountain bandit, all right? You know, uh, so these are people that are hiding out in the mountain, and then when they see something cool that they can make a quick buck from, they, make, they, they pop out and they pop back in. So iPhone has many, many Shanzai uh, evil stepsisters, all right? Uh, then you have uh, this, which is a Coke product, vitamin uh, a drink. Again, even this, which is not a huge seller, has many Shanzai uh, equivalents of it. But a company that does not revere intellectual property protection, and again, let's be very clear, China understands rationally why IP is important, but it is not consistent necessarily with uh, the, the individual being the productive unit of society and the individual needing protection to uh, harness his economic potential. Nike. We're all familiar with Nike's Just Do It spirit. Uh, very rebellious, okay? Don't listen to what society says. This is very aspirational in China, if not practical. But we worked with Anta Shoes, which is one of 400 shoe manufacturers, tennis shoes in Fujian province. Take a look now at some of the inspired logos for Nike's local competitors. Not exactly marks of uh, creative ethos, right? And because the individual is not the basic unit of society, civil institutions designed to protect individual interests have not been developed as they have in some other countries. Now, there is progress being made, but still they, China is a long way off. And by this, I'm talking about independent judiciaries, uh, commercial courts, uh, the wide availability of credit, a fairly transparent and run not uh, withstanding you know, uh, uh, financial transaction system. In, so Chinese people do not necessarily fear that the outside world is safe. Right? So, and that's why the savings rate in China is so high, because some of the institutions, such as the welfare system, haven't been completely developed, the healthcare system as well, and Chinese are completely aware that, particularly at the lower levels of, society, of government, provincial and local government, there is corruption and there is a lack of accountability uh, uh, compared to what the government even wants. I should make an editorial aside. When Chinese talk about democracy, they're not talking about Western democracy. They're not talking about Jeffersonian democracy. This is a theoretical abstraction. 
of the people, by the people, for the people. When Chinese talk about democracy, they are talking about a responsive government, not a representative government. They expect that their government will implement gradual reforms to increase the accountability, the checks and balances, and responsiveness to the people and the emerging needs of a very quickly evolving, evolving population. But so when you have eminent domain abuses, this is a violation of democratic principles because the government is expected to be responsive to various interests in Chinese society and to be able to balance it. Balance it, however, from a top-down patriarchic sense. So the Chinese are not itching for American-style democracy. So there's corruption, as we said, unaccountable leaders. This is the Shanghai Fire. We're all aware of the Wenzhou uh, train accident that happened uh, uh, several months ago, and how when this happened right in front of the Chinese eyes, the government tried to cover up, uh, resulting in 24 million tweets or Weibo's in 24 hours. Right. So this is known to the Chinese people, and it's known by the government, and people are trying to figure out solutions for it. And of course, the government does understand that political reform, incremental, gradual political reform, is important in order to be a more competitive economic power. But still, there are rampant safety concerns in the consumer world. Chinese still prefer Western brands to international, to local brands, because of basic product quality. We'll talk about this a little bit more. Several years ago, there are four years ago in 2008, right after the glory of the Olympics, there was the melamine scandal. And so people couldn't even trust that the milk was not contaminated, resulting in hundreds of thousands of babies with kidney stones. And the service sector, I don't want to talk about, right? But because I, I, I get angry on airplanes. But it's not um, exactly developed. So what do Chinese want? Uh, again, you can talk about it in different ways, but it all springs from what I call a unifying Confucian conflict between ambition and regimentation. I believe that Chinese people want to move forward, but they need to move forward safely. At all levels of Chinese society, there is ambition, but progress must be careful and guarded. So the middle class, for example, wants to project its status, right, but at the same time protect its hard-won economic gains. So there is different impulses between projection and protection. Projection is not sensitive to price premium. It's about status. It's about me. It's dynamic. It's now. Protection, on the other hand, is a very different buying impulse. It's deferred gratification. It's high savings rates. And it's investment in the child. And these two tensions are existing in the heart of most Chinese people. You can also interpret this as standing out to fit in, right? being acknowledged by society by a twist on society, monochromatic with a flash of a twist on, on convention, monochromatic with a flash of color. These terracotta warriors, I think, are incredible. These are protective, right? They were built, of course, to shield the first emperor, Shouhangdi, from uh, bad spirits on his bumpy journey to the afterworld. And by the way, the first emperor, Shouhangdi, he wasn't a nice guy. Right? He was no George Washington. Right? He burned the, the books. He buried scholars alive. But what he did is he unified China. China has an expression, from, from order, uh, progress comes. But each one of these terracotta warriors, they're individually carved with individual facial expressions and facial features, representing, again, a desire to be distinct within the context of regimentation. Or you can call it ambition versus regimentation, wanting to move forward without breaking through the rules, but by leaving around barriers. So uh, a ladder to the sky, but still you ultimately have to follow convention, master convention, in order to succeed. You can reinterpret convention, but you cannot rebel against it. So again, projection versus protection. Let's take a look at what projection feels like. It's bold and it's glorious. Up in the air. Wide open space. Gold. China. 
vast projection. Um, and you know, many people say Chinese luxury brand luxury is new to China. This is completely false. The Chinese have always been fixated with luxury because they've been markers of standing within a social hierarchy. The, the emperor could only wear yellow. People judged a uh, position in society by the store the size of round door knockers and door bolts. Right? Luxury brands are new in China, but not luxury. Luxury use is used to project status. Uh, this is a bad Zhang Yimou movie, all right? It took place in 917, but you can see that this emperor was dripping with luxury, uh, and this is 2011 when the millionaire fair, which has been going strong for five years now, rolled into Shanghai. Some things new are old. Uh, common personal names are very, are very projective. You know, we're all familiar with how the Chinese name their, their kids. Of course, you've got the family name first, and then the given name, which is usually a projection of parents' aspiration, particularly for the men. The, the names are bold and glorious. Kai, Shu, Jie, Shei, Sun, Cosmos, Changjing, uh, Liang, Courage, Climb. Big, bold names that declare an intention to succeed. Or apartment building names. Now, when I came into Hong Kong, I made no money at all. I was very much at the bottom end of a pay scale. Uh, and I lived in a building called Tycoon Court. I was not a tycoon, and the building did not have a court, right? But the building was still named Tycoon Court. In China, of course, now you have uh, any apartment building has a glorious name, except for a little bit of a Buddhist variation here and there. But you've got Peacock Dynasty, and right next to Xin Tiandi, which is the new watering hole spot. Xin Tiandi means new heaven and earth, which again is pretty bold. There's Rich Gate, all right? I believe those are the most expensive apartments in Pushi. You have Heavenly Horse, you have Gold Capital, and my favorite, the gathering of all heroes under heaven. This is called pro projection. So projection is forward-looking, it's out, it's ambitious, but it is bold. It is complemented, however, by another impulse, another basic instinct, not of the Sharon Stone variety, and this is called protection. This is cautious. This is palm reading, so that you can understand the future, fortune-telling, guarding against uncertainty, managing your fate as best you can. Immunity for babies, martial arts, which are always defensive, never offensive. Anti-UV ray protection, big seller and facial cream. Bad men everywhere. talked about the terracotta warriors, but anything that was built to last in China was built to, uh, to, to protect. China has no Taj Mahal, has no Eiffel Tower, has no transcendent uh, monument uh, of glory. China has built things to protect itself. Take a look at the design of the Forbidden City. It's aligned with heaven. It has moats, it has squares, it has a labyrinthian interior, but it is designed to protect uh, the order of, of society. This is also something that I think you only see in China. On the outside of 10th story apartments, you have bars on the windows on the outside to protect from, I don't, I don't know what, Spider-Man gone bad, all right? But uh, e even inside uh, the security guard of the apartment buildings, you have a lot of gates in there just to protect, all right? So what do Chinese want? Chinese want to protect safely, to, pro to progress safely. I want to show this one ad because I think the tone of it is just right for Chinese ambition. It's an insurance company, John Hancock, but people are moving forward through a dangerous world towards the rainbow. Thank you. 
是横康这般与你同行，正步跨越百年的历史，可以领略全球的实力。But the granddaddy of golden rules in China is, in order to charge a price premium, which all multinational brands need to do to survive, right? Because they can never compete on Chinese terrain at low prices. It's impossible.、Uh, you need to maximize public consumption. In order to have a profit margin, the product needs to move you forward in society by having other people acknowledge you. So public consumption equals a price premium, even for fast-moving consumer goods. Many of you are probably not aware of this online promotion. This was one of the most successful social media phenomenons of recent years by Pepsi Cola, and it was called "Get on the Can." Basically, 680 million people participated in this for an opportunity to have their picture emblazoned on a package of Pepsi Cola. So this is the importance of shining, right, and being acknowledged by other people. But obviously, certain brands. Are going to have an easier time of it. Brands that are consumed in public will be swimming up the tide a little, with a little bit less、uh, difficulty than brands that are consumed in the house. Luxury brands, obviously, we all know that China is now the largest consumer of luxury goods, even within mainland China. I mean,、uh, what the reports that I've seen have suggested that as of this year. Not even including trips to Hong Kong, okay, or、uh, elsewhere by mainlanders. Mainland China is the largest luxury market.、Um, another statistic that I read that's fascinating is that mainland Chinese account for two percent of visitors to France now, but they purchase fifteen percent of all luxury goods in France in Paris. This is the importance of luxury as a tool. Luxury is not about indulgence, but it is. Weapon on the battlefield of life, and we'll talk about that a little bit later.、Um, but business models need to change to conform to the、uh, to the imperative of public consumption. Starbucks in China is different than Starbucks here. China, of course, is a tea culture. Chinese don't particularly love coffee, but Starbucks now has 1,500 stores scattered around the mainland. How did they pull off this miracle? They changed their model. They made their stores bigger. They brought in the menu. Instead of having lots of chairs for individuals, they have big tables. So new generation types can go in there as a gang and proclaim their affiliation with the new middle class. And they are willing to pay six dollars for a cup of coffee to have that projection. Haagen-Dazs, another successful company that conforms to the, to the public consumption model. No Chinese. Individual that I have ever met, and I mean ever, right, is willing to pay 34 renminbi for a half pint of cookies and cream ice cream to take it home and enjoy it while in the privacy of his own home watching an illegal DVD. It's not going to happen. So what Star, what Hagen does does is it builds this model at the only place on the world in the world in parlors, ice cream parlors. There are now 500 of them. So young. A man can go, bring it, come in with their dates, and be project their new generation cool. All right, in a public setting, Pizza Hut too. Very few Chinese like foreign food inside the house. Pizza delivery is not a business model, except for a few expats here and there. All right, but that if, if anybody's ever gone to a Pizza Hut store in China, they're huge. All right, round tables. Chinese like round things a lot,、uh, and then the family comes together and they uh, uh, project their middle class identity, you know, twice a month in a pizza hut. Right. So this is another different business model. Right. Mobile phones. The top mobile phones are exclusively and、uh, multinational brands, despite the fact that relative to cost of goods, they charge a 250 percent price premium vis-a-vis local brands. But When you go into the house, appliances are all local brands.
brands, and they're all very price competitive. Brands like TCL, Chang Home, Hire, right? Because inside the home, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not worth investing a lot of money in status display. I don't know whether it's me or whether it's China, but very few people invite me to dinner parties in China. Um, but, but this results in challenges. Probably the biggest mistake that Western marketers make when they come to China is not getting the price-value equation right. And price-value equation needs to be adjusted based on the degree of public consumption. Because again, Chinese are much willing to spend more money for goods that are consumed out of home. IKEA for 10 years struggled in China because it was more of a showroom, an idea uh, uh, showroom, and people would go buy cheaper things you know, uh, at, at cheaper stores. It wasn't until they adjusted their price value equation, lowered the cost of goods, lowered the price, that it began to expand dramatically, that the, that the what, what they call the footfall traffic translated into actual sales. And now IKEA is in many, many cities in China. Sony, okay, has made some mistakes. Sony Handycam, which is brandished in public, has a 50% market share and growing. Bravia Television Set, which is consumed in private, has a 3% market share. So again, this is the imperative of public consumption. Uh, Siemens, okay, of course things evolve. People are becoming a little bit more willing to pay premiums for things in the house. Okay, China is always evolving, sometimes rapidly. Siemens now, all right, has a 20% share of refrigerators at a premium price. But notice the thing about refrigerators. They're big. You can point to them. That's Siemens. Uh, uh, on the other hand, stoves, Siemens stoves and other small appliances haven't made a mark at all. All right, so you always have to uh, calibrate your price value equation. I want to play this uh, commercial. This is Ford Focus. In the West, this is all about individualism, defining your own drive. In China, Ford Focus feels Western, but actually it's quite Chinese because at the end, all of this individualism results in something that has been produced, something concrete, and other people acknowledge it. Take a look at a youthful, projected public ad. Not about the thrill of the drive. This is another deceptive ad because, again, Western individualism is very aspirational in China. I call it Eve's apple. It's tempting, it's delicious, it's succulent, but if you bite into it, you can get banished to the land of outcasts. This is a VSOP ad that celebrates originality, independent thinking. The guy says, I just am who I am. So it feels, again, very Western, but ultimately public display comes into the equation and he starts checking the boxes of conventional success. He has the right girl looking at him, he is a successful artist, and he clearly is making money. But again, ultimately public conventional success. So the first golden rule that affects business model and strategy is maximizing public display in order to charge a price premium. The second might get a little bit into the land of advertising theory, and for that, again, I apologize. But we have this term in advertising called positioning or benefits. This is really why people want a product. The, you, in China, you never have internalized benefits. You never have something that just feels good. When Chinese people go to a spa, they, sometimes the difference is going to be subtle. You don't want to say, relax. You want to say, 
we charge. Everything is a little bit of a means to an end, getting back into the game in this case. So products have to move you forward. Products are brands, are weapons of advancement on the battlefield of life. Because it's competitive out there, and there is a lot of uh, uncertainty, and it's not always safe. So brands are tools. Now remember what we talked about before, the diamond ad from De Beers from America? This is a Chinese De Beers advertising. And notice the difference. Uh, well, I should, uh, for those of you that don't speak English, I have to, uh, there aren't subtitles there. But the woman, okay, she looks up at the moon, they're at a resort, by the way, and she says, oh, the moon is so beautiful. Again, Chinese people like round things, and women love round things, all right? And then the guy says, he doesn't say, oh, yes, I love it, all right? He says, I will go get it for you, all right? You know, he needs to prove his love. So he dives into the pool, and when he comes up, slowly, slowly, it's not with the moon, it's with something even better, the equivalent of five months of his salary. <laughs> and the end tagline is, for you, absolutely anything is possible. See, Roma? What I Advancement, this product is a means to an end, exists at all levels of society. Let me play you the classic Passat ad, which basically positions cars as a uh, door opener, teaching you the rules of success on the business battlefield. And by the way, sports cars don't sell in China. You know, feeling that engine running through you, you know, this testosterone release, okay, unless it's channeled productively, it's not worth the premium, and it's too conspicuous. Uh, I guess that can be translated as the diamond, the sparkle makes the man. This is uh, a female equivalent of this. The brand is something that helps a woman glide forward with elegance. Chinese women, of course, as we all know, have ambitions as well. When uh, they're, they're quite strong, and you ask the local guys, are Chinese strong or not? Strong, they will say Fei Chan Fei Chan Li Hai Da. All right, it's very different than Japanese women, uh, very different. But uh, you know, Mao Jushi Patrol, Nuren Changshi Pangian Tian. All right, yes, okay, women want to be acknowledged as well for their contributions in society. They also want to move forward. But according to Confucian imperative, you can never sacrifice your ultimate role, which is the loving and kind protector of the family. So women, when they move forward, they need to move forward, reinforcing elegance and substance that shines. Right? So, but this is not just true for the middle class. This is true for the mass market as well. But they define success in narrower, more modest terms. But they still crave movement forward in society. 
This is, you guys probably will laugh at this ad, but it's a detergent ad. It's a detergent ad for the mass market, Feng Chao, that's about strong stain removal. Strong, strong stain removal here results in societal acknowledgement. How does it do it? Well, if the stain removal is strong, the clothes will look like new, the daughter will look like a little uh, sort of swan on stage, the mother will be considered a smart mother, new clothes, no, new Feng Chao detergent, and then the audience applause both for mother and daughter, all in 30 seconds. Tomorrow there's the performance. Are you going to buy new clothes? So that is money saving that results in uh, public admiration. All right. So the third golden rule, first golden rule again is public display, second is externalized benefits, and third is reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. The primary role of brands in China is to reassure. We've already suggested that Chinese don't necessarily consider the outside world as safe as Westerners do, and that's why every fast-moving packaged goods that uh, is ingested into the body or placed on the body requires a stamp of reassurance from a credible central government source. And I just want to mention this brand right here. This is called Safeguard Soap, Shu Fu Jia, uh, which literally means what? A comfortable, uh, act, uh, nice in the family, Jia. Uh, uh, but anyhow, this has been a leader for 25 years, always with a 25% market share. All right? And what is its benefit? Germinal. It is the only market where our protective benefit is the leading brand of soap. So to make sure that your kids are safe even in the bathtub. This is Costco. This is one of the nation's largest food conglomerates. Okay, Costco became adored by the Chinese people after the melamine scandal because they have two things. They have big scale, but also they had a corporate campaign that talks about uh, efficient chain management, chain management optimization during the production process because it reassures them of basic safety. Scale reassures. Uh, sorry for this uh, Caucasian. This is misleading uh, because Chinese don't want to see Caucasians in advertising. But hire, okay, is not love because of innovation. Hire, the appliance manufacturer, is a reassuring brand because it's both big but also its service product and its service offering has been professionalized to ensure 24-hour service guarantee. So on a physical level, brands reassure, but brands also reassure on a societal level in terms of making sure that you don't lose face, and in China, face is the currency of forward advancement. Face is invested, face is traded, you take away somebody's face, you take away their sense of security to continue moving forward, and if, you don't, if you're losing face, you're moving backwards. So this is one of the crudest examples of loyalty marketing in China, the VIP card, or the VVIP card, or the triple V card, or the VQ card. Now, the average Chinese guy or woman will have one or two credit cards, but a guy that gets around town will have a thick stack of VIP cards. No matter which store he goes into, it can be a restaurant, a newspaper stand, it can be the corner massage parlor, both the good kind of massage and the bad kind of massage, and he really wants to kill two birds with one stone. As the Chinese say, he wants his status reinforced. I'm a very important person. Now can I have a discount, please? You know, so it, again, is resolving uh, price sensitivity and reassurance with bigness. Right? But service, of course, is all dependent on status. Retail is dependent on status. If anybody goes into the newer showrooms for automobiles, this is a family that is treated like visiting royalty. Luxury brands and retail concepts need to make sure that stores are designed to ensure that the people that retail experience is a stage. People are on display as they're um, trying on clothes. Right. So I just those are the three golden rules: uh, uh, the public display, externalized benefits, 
and also reassurance on both the functional level and, and emotional level. I just want to say a few words on the internet. Many people say that digital revolution is changing China fundamentally. I think that's a little bit overstated. I believe that the internet is changing China quickly, mostly for the good, uh, for several reasons. First, it's manna from heaven. The offline world is regimented, both in self-expression and entertainment and, and uh, uh, news alternatives. Here you can have anything you want, it's available and it's free, whether it be games, whether it be social networks like runrun.com, Kaishinwang, or, sorry for saying this, but pornography, the government turns a blind eye because it does not consider pornography a threat to social stability, all right? So if anybody has been into um, net bars, they're huge, they're the size of football fields, and they attract the crowds because you're not just an internet user, somebody on the internet is a Wangming, a netizen, a citizen of a parallel universe of liberation. So uh, whether it be gaming, whether it be any other interest, the internet provides a new world of lifestyle opportunities that is in stark contrast to the conformism of the offline world. There is a platform to shine. That's what explained what the Pepsi get on a can success. But people do this all the time on the internet. Of course, shielded by anonymity and avatars, they project their greatness and generate acknowledgement by their friends or by uh, anonymous people for their talent. So on the internet, narcissism is quite okay. Uh, and you can become famous very quickly. Fei Wang went the traditional route, but Liu Chuan, Supergirl, what became a celebrity in just a matter of uh, months, a huge celebrity, a superstar, uh, empowered by digital technology. And uh, Supergirl is important because she had the masses redefine traditional standards of Chinese talent and beauty and charm. These are the dorm room boys, and I'm putting them up here because sometimes becoming famous can make money. They had a special talent, they were Guangzhou students, long story short, after they became famous, which took three weeks, right, they became Pepsi spokespeople and Motorola spokespeople, and they make more money than many of us do. Because they had a talent that was broadcast and acknowledged. The importance of key opinion leaders online is critical, but we don't have time to talk about this. is the same thing, the huge success of Nokia, who's got the best dance moves, okay? Again, rankings and acknowledgement canvassing. This Colgate Star Search competition that took place online. So you do have a platform to shine. The internet also helps this individualistic impulse be realized so that like-minded mavericks can find people a common cause in the virtual world. Converse sponsored the hard rock band tour, a virtual hard rock band tour. Most Chinese like to be <coughs> nice and soft or, or unthreatening, but the few people that do like hard rock can find common cause on the internet. And it's also balancing the power between shoppers and retailers. We don't have time to talk about the revolution of e-commerce, but Taobao is a phenomenon, Tmall is a phenomenon, and particularly in lower tier cities where bricks and mortar have not really developed to the same extent they have in primary cities. And I also believe, contrary to uh, many people, that it's good for the relationship between consumers and their government, people and their government. Of course, they, people do uh, protest. They send tweets when they're angry, such as what happened for the Wenzhou train. This year says, hold up the truth. It was an, uh, uh, a posting by, by a, a famous blogger on his Weibo account. But the government is listening, and the government isn't listening only to control. The government is also listening to respond, to have a better feeling for what the concerns of other people on the ground, so that they can capture incidences before they become genuine crises. So I believe that it is narrowing the chasm between rulers and ruled. But revolution is a strong word. Uh, Google is an obvious example of a company that was tone deaf to every business imperative in China and went down in flames. And I think nobody that saw Google uh, operate in China before it was basically uh, strong-armed uh, was surprised. But still, the internet is shielded by anonymity and uh, safety. There is a distance to that in the real world free expression is still mission impossible. The media still has an incredible power to control the terms of debate, which is why very few people have ever heard of Chen Guancheng. Very few people know 
what's been happening with Boshi Lai. There's a lot of gossip on it, but still they control the terms of the debate. So, to recap, right, I believe that the Chinese worldview is different than the Western worldview because the relationship between people and society is fundamentally different. In China, the individual does not exist independent of his obligations and responsibilities to other people. The Chinese have a cyclical view of time and space where everything is interconnected. As a result of Confucian imperatives, stability is the only absolute good because stability is the platform on which progress is constructed. So this worldview yields many Chinese strengths that will make it a competitor in the 21st century and an economic superpower. Nationalization, national mobilization of resources, we didn't talk about this today, but application of foreign strengths in Chinese context and incremental progression, but it also has limitations which will ensure that China will never push us off the stage either as long as we are not afraid of China's rise and those are conformism that militates against innovation, and the lack of institutions designed to protect individual interests. And finally, we talked about three golden rules, standing out to fit in. Uh, first is public consumption to justify price premium, the fact that products need to be positioned in accordance with the Chinese worldview, with externalized benefits, products as a means to an end, and finally, the importance of brands to reassure both on physical level and on emotional and societal level. So with that, I hope that uh, I've shared a few of our thoughts. Thank you very much, and happy to take any questions. I promised that we would end on time, so we have about two minutes for questions. So please keep them short, no speechifying. Excellent presentation. Enjoyed it very much. Um, your book here uh, at the end, the epilogue, focuses on myths of modern China that exist, especially here in the United States. Uh, could you comment on why that exists, and and have you, in your uh, special expertise of helping shape public opinion, have you ever been called on by any officials in China to, how should I say, work against? The, these myths? Never. Um, I actually find that the Chinese are very clear-eyed about uh, themselves. Right? I, I think that the reason why I, I, I find my most sensitive audiences actually are expatriates <laughs> and sometimes uh, overseas Chinese ABCs that come in, but the mainlanders are very aware of their own circumstances, point one. I mean, China has emerged as a nation of realists, and as long as you convey a respect and, a, and, an, and an affection for the Chinese people and a respect for their ambitions, you can talk about things very, very directly. As to the first part of the question, I think that Americans are cultural absolutists and we believe in our own exceptionalism. And it's very difficult for us to believe that as other nations modernized economically, they're not becoming more like us. You know, and so I think that it really takes a tremendous change in frame of reference which we've only recently begun in this country, and I hope that we have the leadership that encourages our people to understand that for the first time uh, there's going to be two very different worldviews uh, uh, dominating the global scene. Yes? Uh, thank you very much. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I did have one section that I was confused on. Yes? Uh, you mentioned the public consumption and gave the example of the Sony cameras versus the, the TVs, which yes. you said was about 5%. And then the next example you gave was with the Siemens, with the refrigerator being large and more noticeable than the small stove. But it seems to me that it's a contradiction between the two examples, because if you're visiting a home, wouldn't you notice the TV, which is something you watch, rather than the refrigerator? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, You've got me, right? Uh, all I can say is the bigger something is, the better that the more noticeable is and more likely it is to charge a price premium. I will say, however, that um, that uh, televisions are still dominated, right, by um, local manufacturers. Right? That, that's all but I can say. But refrigerators right live in the living room. Yeah. So you do see a refrigerator yeah. while you don't see the stove. But he's talking about the TV. He got the stove, right? Yes. Could you address the amount of channels, the amount of distribution channels that you mentioned the brick and mortar, you mentioned the e-channels. And you mentioned the e-channels. China is such a decentralized physical geography, you know, compared to mature economies. 
Are, you, are there um, emerging channels that you can see coming up? You mean channel for actually selling goods? Yeah. Retail? I mean, the, 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 the key thing that's happening right now is what I call the mollification of, of lower tier markets, right? Uh, because right now there aren't malls and there aren't department stores, right, that anchor the malls, right? So I personally think that once you start building malls and, and lower tier cities with, with anchor stores there, then a lot of other things start happening, all right? But there's no question that and distribution and, and retail outlets are just developing because right now it's a land grab, right, in the real estate. It's not about uh, category management or shopper marketing. So it's still watching this space. I've got time for one more, then I have to go. Sir? Yeah. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Do you think China has a public global strategy? If so, what's your view of uh, how it is being implemented? I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I'm so sorry to say this, but. I think its public diplomacy is very weak. All right, you know, uh, I think that China uh, has difficult. It, China can be ethnocentric sometimes. All right, so I think that China needs to understand that when it goes out into the outside world, it cannot preach. All right, it needs to engage in dialogue. I mean, I think that the Confucius Institutes are one example of a missed opportunity. They're very, very political, all right? So they've devolved into uh, language institutes, all right? So I personally think that China needs not to have Xinhua uh, on the um, uh, Times Square, but it needs to become more open to exchange of ideas, all right, that might not be in accordance to uh, a Communist Party dictum outside the United States, or, I mean, outside, excuse me, China. I'm not saying that it shouldn't manage debate inside the country, though I think it could be a little bit looser, but China needs to truly assimilate into other cultures in order to have effective diplomacy.